Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. You guys can have a seat. How are we doing, family? Doing good? Cool. Love that we started the morning off that way. Um, hey, if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name's Nathan. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Would love to get the chance to do that. Would love to get the chance to meet uh, all of you guys. That would be fun. Um, we are going through the book of James this semester. If you need a Bible, um, we've got Bibles in the back. I know that there was a table set up with a ton of them out here. Some on the sides over here on this little bar thing, and then on that back table, steal one. Um, we're going to be in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, if you want to start flipping there. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Um, while you're flipping there, to give you some time, um, do you all ever do that thing where you read a book and you're reading, and then you look up and you realize you've just been mindlessly reading for like 15 minutes and you have no clue what you just read? Yes, I have to like reread things over and over again. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm now on page 67. Gandalf just died. Like, what is going on? Um, and it just happens all the time. You just realize you're mindlessly scrolling through, or scrolling through things. I noticed it on the way here this morning. I did the thing which is way more terrifying than not knowing what you're reading in a book. Where I woke up, it's still, er, it was really early. It's dark out and I'm just like getting out of my house. My, I had some family staying over and so I had to be really quiet and I'm just already felt disoriented to begin with. Um, and I get in my car and then next thing you know, I look up and I'm in the back parking lot of here and I don't even remember how I got there. Like, do y'all do that where you're driving and you don't even remember the route that you took? It's like, I don't remember choosing to stop at any red lights that I know I have to pass to get here. Um, and you, it, it's almost scary. You're like, what did I do? How did I get here? What decisions did I make to get me here? Like, did I almost get in a wreck? Um, I know where I want to go. I know where I want to be. And sometimes I'm, I end up there. I just don't know how. But then other times I don't end up there at all. Like with the driving thing, I've got muscle memory coming to this building. And anytime I come on this side of town, it's like I intuitively come here when I'm actually supposed to be going to like my barber and I'll pull up in the back parking lot. And it's like, I don't need to be here. Um, but I do that in, in life just generally a lot. And maybe that just says something about me. Um, but another, another way that I thought through this was I think about um, the kind of person I want to be, the kind of follower of Jesus I want to be, the kind of husband I want to be, the kind of pastor. I have an idea of what I want to, to look like and who I want to be. And so what I do um, is I'm like, here are the values that I want to stake my life on. Here are the things that I want to shape that. Here are the choices that I'm going to make. Here are the shots that I'm going to call, all to kind of cultivate who I want to be and where I want to go. And sometimes it works and I'm shaping that. But then other times, a uh, big part of my story in college was I was looking for uh, things to satisfy longings in me, this idea of peace and freedom and joy. And I look up and I'm doing all the things that I thought would get me there. But I look up and I'm like, I'm, I have everything but peace. I have everything but joy right now. I'm actually, all these choices that I've been making are, are, aren't satisfying that at all. They're actually destroying my peace. They're actually destroying my joy. And, and I don't have what I was set off to get. Um, and I've noticed as I've reflected on my life, Peace specifically is something that I've wanted. There's two things that my soul desperately longs for. Indestructible internal peace and then Saturday brunch at local foods. 
I just literally have to have it. The blueberry pancakes are amazing. Um, but that idea of indestructible internal peace sometimes is fulfilled by the pancakes, yes. Um, but other times, I've just gone my entire life looking um, and choosing to do certain things to help cultivate that kind of peace in me. That's just been, I've realized as I reflect on my life, a big driving motive for the things that I've chose to do and the decisions that I've made and the shots I've decided to call. And sometimes it's been conscious, other times it's been subconscious. Um, and I'll look up and I, again, I, I'm doing the total opposite of cultivating that peace in me. And here's the reality. I, I remember in college and even now, there's a lot of voices telling me um, and telling us, here's how you find something like peace. Here's how you find something like joy. And they all claim to be true. They all claim to be the way of wisdom, but there's so many of them. We're bombarded with them. If that's the case, because that is a reality, then how can we tell the difference between them? How can we know what is true wisdom, what's actually going to lead to something like indestructible peace? How can we tell the difference? Um, that's essentially the same question that James kicks off today. I'm going to throw verse 13 up here. This is the first thing that he, he does. He asks this question, who is wise and understanding, understanding among you? Or in other words, who here has true, genuine wisdom? And that's the question that we're going to be tackling today. What is true, genuine wisdom? What does true wisdom look like? How can we be confident that we're leading our lives with it, leading our lives wisely? Um, and how can we trust that we're making decisions that aren't foolish, that aren't going to ultimately um, lead us to a place where we look up one day in confusion and defeat and discouragement and say, how did I get here? Um, because ultimately our lives are going to tell the story. We're going to look up one day, we're going to look back, um, and our life, the way that we've led it, will prove whether we've lived it wisely or not. Um, look at the way he finishes this verse. He says, who is wise in understanding? And he says, whoever it is, by his good conducts, let him show that he's wise in understanding. Let him show his works in the meekness or humility, is what your, uh, translation might say, of wisdom. Um, he's saying your life will tell a story of it being shaped and led by wisdom or not. Um, people who are truly wise and understanding will show themselves by their works and the meekness or humility of wisdom. And when we, again, when we look back on our lives, we're going to see it and we're going to feel it, especially when we're looking to feel something like peace and we're looking to satisfy that longing for indestructible internal peace and joy and everything under that umbrella. We're going to be able to look back on our lives and confidently say one way or the other, man, all of the decisions that I made were wise decisions or they were all unwise decisions and I don't even know what I was doing. Sometimes they were mindless decisions and now I can see it and I can feel it um, because the reality is at that point when you do look up, the effects of your choices and your decisions will have sunk in, solidified, and set in place by that point. We're going to see it, and we're going to feel it. So with that said, um, let's jump into the rest of the text. We'll throw verse 14 up here. Um, what you're going to see, just to give you a preview, James is going to put wisdom into two different categories. He's going to put one in the category of false wisdom, and he's going to put another in the category of true wisdom. And we're going to look at both of them. We're going to look at what they're characterized by, where they come from, and what they lead to. So here's verse 14. He says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Now, already here, we see James making a contrast. Verse 13, he said, True wisdom is going to show itself by the meekness or humility, right? Um, 
this idea of it's selfless, it's humble. Here he's saying it's marked by boasting, which is the opposite. Think of, of pride. Um, he's already creating two separate distinctions, which is the first characterization of false wisdom. It's going to be marked by pride and lies. And lies, just think of false truth or even half truth. Um, and I'll explain that in, in a second. Um, typically, think about your, your life experience. When you are being motivated by jealousy or selfish ambition or some sort of pure selfish motive or pride, typically you, you will bend truth or even ignore truth to cater to your desire, right? That's just kind of something we, we all do. Um, and if you think about it, that's especially common in our day and age when something like live your truth is kind of what's elevated. It's what you should do, like live your truth, ignore that other truth, or bend the truth to fit you and what, what you want and what is going to make you feel good and what's going to make you have a guilt-free, you know, conscience and all that kind of stuff. But here's a couple notes for you. He mentions, don't be false to the truth. When James is referring to truth here, he's referring to the truth of the gospel, just the way that he uses it in the rest of uh, his letter. Every time he refers to the truth, it's highly likely that he's referring to the gospel, which at base level is just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. At a slightly deeper level, uh, the gospel is that you are a sinner, you're broken, and you're in desperate need of a savior. Um, That you, in and of yourself, are more flawed, more imperfect, more broken, and more sinful than you could ever imagine. And yet, because of Jesus and the work that he's done, if you're in Christ, you're more loved and accepted than you could ever dream. And if you believe that truth, and you believe that the God of the universe loved you and gave himself up for you, you receive his spirit, who who lives inside of you to lead a life of obedience into life abundant. And James is saying, he's essentially saying, um, he's trying to guard people from boasting in anything other than that reality. He said, if you're boasting in yourself, if you're boasting in any reality that isn't in line with that gospel, with that truth, then it's a false truth. And it's coming out of pride, selfish ambition. It's coming out of jealousy, maybe, for something that you don't have and that you want. Um, He's guarding people from boasting in anything other than the reality of the gospel. Because it's easy for us, in our brokenness, in our prideful, sinful nature, to adopt and believe the lie that we know best. Right? That's constantly our our default. I know better. I know what's good for me. Again, live your truth. I know what's best for me. Um, Which is what got us in the trouble in the first place, in the garden. God created life perfectly good. We're in a beautiful, perfect relationship with him. And then we decided, we decided to believe the lie uh, that we know better, and it broke everything. It fractured our relationship with the God of the universe and our beautiful, abundant life with him. Um, and so James is saying, don't boast in anything other than the reality of the gospel. Um, and he's saying that because there are a lot of false truths and a lot of even half-truths um, that are appealing and attractive, um, and disguises themselves as, as the truth. And here's, here's what I mean by that, especially thinking of the idea of half-truth. There are a lot of things that uh, will disguise themselves as the gospel. My, uh, my friends the other day, earlier, I guess it was a week ago, um, I had a group of friends who all went to go visit another church, which, like, first of all, traitors. Second of all, they didn't invite me, so felt left out. Um, but they went to this church, and it was apparently awesome. Like, it was vibey. Worship was really great. It was outside. It was, like, a beautiful day. Um, they went because they got invited. They wanted to go check it out. I think they knew someone going. And everything was good. Like, they didn't blink twice. It just felt like another uh, worship 
service, worship experience. The worship was all familiar, all songs that they knew. Um, it was great, all biblical stuff. All fine and dandy until the guy got up on stage to, to speak. And then apparently, um, one of them told me they remember Ben standing up here, another pastor on staff, saying that if anyone, any church is not preaching the gospel, then to run. And apparently that's what was going through their head the, the entire time. Because this guy got up there and he started with, which sounds great and is, again, half true, that the God of the universe loves you and accepts you right where you're at. He sees all of your sin. He sees all of your imperfection. He sees your brokenness. And he says, I still love you. And that is true. Like the God of the universe does love you despite you, despite your sin. But apparently this guy stopped there and said, actually, you should celebrate your sin is effectively what he was communicating. The God of the universe doesn't call you to anything better. He doesn't call you to walk in newness of life. He doesn't call you to walk in obedience. That's all legalism. You get to stay in your sin, which we know sin and what I want you to hear isn't just something that you do. It's not a moral, immoral thing. That's how it expresses itself. It's a disease of your heart that you can't escape from that leads to your own destruction and death. And apparently this guy was preaching everything but that. He was uh, romanticizing sin, essentially. And that's what I mean by half-truth. It's disguising itself as the gospel because it's, it's sexy and it's appealing and it, and it feels good of like, oh, I've got, I, I know my flaws. I'm imperfect. Someone loves me and they accept me in that? Absolutely, I'll follow that. But that's only half of the gospel. That's only half the story. The God of the universe says, yes, I see your brokenness and I want to re- restore it. I want to make it new. And so, James is saying, don't boast in anything that's half true. It's, it's false to the truth. Um, and that's a characterization of false wisdom. It's not truly, truly wisdom. And look at where it comes from. Verse 15. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. Um, I've had two passages recently in the book of James that all deal with demons, and I'm starting to f- notice a theme here. Um, let's unpack it. The uh, earthly, think of, actually, let me start with this. As I've, as I've studied scripture, taken some Bible theology classes um, here in Fort Worth and all that kind of stuff, and as I've listened to other pastors, other theologians, scholars, all that kind of stuff, the, uh, I've found that there's this thing that the early the reality that this, the early church fathers would call the three enemies to your soul. Um, one of them says there are three enemies to the soul that sabotage your peace, which kind of connects to what I'm talking about today. But three enemies of the soul, and you see them here. Earthly. First enemy is the world. Um, Unspiritual. Sensual as opposed to spiritual. So like think flesh. The world, the flesh, and then you have demonic. You have an ultimate enemy um, that scripture tells us is prowling around like a lion waiting for someone to devour um, called the devil. Satan, uh, God's adversary, is uh, what he's called throughout scripture. Uh, Another theologian, C.S. Lewis says, Satan, the devil, is a very real enemy who is clever and cunning as hell. Obviously, he's the devil, um, if you're tracking there. But um, those are the three enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I'm guessing you have never quite thought of those three things as your enemy. Maybe the devil, but maybe, again, you just thought of him as maybe some fictional character um, that's not really real, not really present, you don't give a lot of airtime. And that's okay, but he's a very real enemy. Maybe you've never thought of the world as your enemy. The world around me is my enemy. What does that mean? And you've probably especially never thought of yourself as the enemy to your soul. Again, we live in a world that says, live your truth. You know what's best. You know your desires are 
what you need, what you, if you can get them, take them. Like you've probably never thought of your flesh and your desires as destructive, disordered, and ultimately your enemy. But that is a very real reality that James is starting to highlight for us. Um, False wisdom and lies come straight from these three enemies, from the world, um, what is earthly, the flesh, sensual, flesh-driven as opposed to spiritual, and the enemy, the devil. Um, Let's go, I'm going to take us into Genesis chapter 2. and look at the original lie and how these enemies kind of all, all work together. This is right in the beginning. First page of your Bible. God creates this beautiful creation um, and creates the heavens and the earth, all that kind of stuff. He calls it good. Then he creates man and he delights in it. And he calls it very good. And he's like, cool, this is my creation. He takes so much delight in it. Um, and then he creates this garden um, and he puts man in the garden. He says, the Lord God took the man whom he created, who he delighted in, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Um, real quick, I highlighted that word work, and I keep forgetting about it. This is such a tangent, um, but fun little nugget for you just to have. That word work also translates to the word cultivate, which drove the, uh, the naming of this summer project that we're doing. Cultivating your life with Jesus, cultivating discipleship to, G- to Jesus. Um, it's kind of the original command that we were told to do, to cultivate this earth and cultivate life with the God of the universe. And so that's your own little nugget. Let's get back to this. So he puts man in the garden, says it to work it and to keep it. And then look at what comes next. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of this garden that I've created for you to enjoy. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just this one type of tree, you shall not eat. For in that day, if you eat of it, you will surely die. He says, I've created this garden for you. It's good. And everything is up for grabs. Everything's on the table. I created it for you to enjoy. It's yours. You can name that tree whatever the heck you want to. You want to call it a ficus? It's a ficus. Like, it's yours. Enjoy it. Um, He said, this tree, though, it's called the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch it. Don't eat of it. Because if you do, you're going to die. And I created you so that you can live with me. I don't want you to die. Truth. Right there. That's what God said. Now, Adam works, the, the original man works in the garden and God creates a female for him, a partner for him and says it's not good for man to be alone and it's this beautiful, abundant life that's happening between man and woman and God and it's, it's great and they're working the ground and they're keeping it and they're enjoying life and they're flourishing and then chapter three opens up with this. Chapter three, um, verse one. I'm just gonna read you this whole story so stick with me. You see this character of a serpent. It says, now the serpent was more crafty, again, clever and cunning, um, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, this is the serpent speaking, did God actually say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said of this tree, you shall not eat the fruit um, that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, Uh, lest you die. But then the serpent replied to the woman. He said, you're not going to die. You will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, he just bends the truth just a little bit. He already starts deceiving. And so when the woman saw that the tree was actually good for food, that you could eat the fruit off of it, that is an option, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, 
and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. They made themselves clothes because they were ashamed of being naked, which we'll see in a second. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, just like another normal day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Again, they're ashamed. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And the man replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The one thing I told you not to do. And the man said, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit. And so I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And I like to picture that as more of a grieved kind of answering of the question, not a stern, I'm disappointed in you and mad at you kind of question of like, you're going to die. What did you do? And the woman responded, the serpent deceived me, so I ate. The reason I wanted to read through this whole story is so that you could see that slight deceiving start to happen, that slight deceptive idea. God said, spoke what is true. He said, if you touch this tree and if you eat of it, you're going to die. And I, you and I both don't want that. And then here comes the enemy, the serpent, who says, you're not going to die. It's good for food. It's going to make you wise. It's desirable. Just look at the thing. It's attractive. It's sexy. Just go ahead and do it. And he deceives them and they do it. And then ultimately sin enters the world. It breaks through this, fractures, breaks the world, um, separates God and man. Their relationship is broken. And that sin leads to death. You will surely die. It leads to destruction and death. And so you already see this idea of a deceptive idea planted, played to this desire of man and woman to be like God, and it ruined everything. Um, there's a pastor and an author uh, named John Mark Comer, who I, I love and follow, and he has a book called Live No Lies that talks about this, and I thought this was helpful. This is straight from his book, but it helps you kind of see the three enemies of the soul and how they, they work together. It starts with the enemy, the devil, planting a deceptive idea. That plays to your flesh. It plays to disordered desire which is normalized in the world, normalized in a sinful society that says, hey, it's okay. You can do this. You're not going to surely die. This is actually good for you. And just think about it. We are bombarded in our day and age, and I think always have been, but it's especially noticeable now. We are bombarded by deceptive ideas that are both attractive to our longings and they're applauded by the rest of the world. In our current context and cultural moment, it is easy to believe that if you're unhappy with how your body looks and you're jealous of what you don't have, then just do whatever that cute little infographic on Instagram tells you to do and follow the what I eat in a day meal plan of your favorite influencer, right? We live in a world where it is easy to believe that if you're stressed out and anxious, then all you need to do is do whatever's going to make you comfortable. Do whatever you feel like. Do whatever is going to give you pleasure and do whatever is going to give you that escape from whatever you're stressed and anxious about and is going to make you feel good which when you think about some of those things, they're probably some of the most toxic and emotionally unhealthy things you could ever do for a coping mechanism. But it, again, another example, it is so easy to believe. This is one that I felt to all the time because I want peace and I, I felt lonely. It's easy to believe that if you feel lonely and you long for intimacy and, or if you simply just don't want your life to be boring, then you should go find a sense of connection in a hookup or a, a thrill in getting blackout, right? Just showing how much you can hang and, and trying to fit in. Those are what we're surrounded by. And look at what that kind of wisdom, wisdom leads to. 
verse 16. For where things like this exist, jealousy, selfish ambition, disordered desire, where things like that exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That's what false wisdom leads to, disorder. Um, which we're going to unpack that word just a little more, look at it a little more closely. Disorder in the original language that James is writing in, Greek, um, which we don't really talk in at all anymore, uh, translates to this word, I'm going to butcher this, akatastasia. The only reason I try to say that in front of you is so you can hear how chaotic that word even sounds, um, which is a part of the idea of what that word is trying to connotate and the feeling it's trying to invoke. This idea of chaos, of a chaotic frenzy, um, this feeling of, of restlessness is what it's, and unstableness is what it's trying to invoke and what that word translates to and, and encompasses. And one of the early church fathers named St. Augustine uh, has a beautiful articulation of the reality that James is, is pointing us to here. He says, our hearts are disordered. Our hearts are unstable. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. God is who he's referring to. And we long for that. We long for rest. We long for peace. We long for completeness and wholeness. We feel broken and disordered. We long for restoration and order. And we find ourselves looking at our lives, at all the ways we've tried to create that for ourselves, and looking up and realizing we have everything but that. We look up and we say, how did I get here? I feel like I just mindlessly ended up here in this place that I don't want to be. My situation is worse. That's false wisdom, and that's all false wisdom is going to lead you to. It's characterized by pride, selfish motive, ambition, destructive desire, all that kind of stuff. Um, It comes from the enemies of the soul, um, three of them, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it's only ever going to produce more disorder in your life uh, and more restlessness in your life. Now, let's look at true wisdom, and then we'll move through this a little little quicker. True wisdom. Read uh, James 3. Verse 17 through 18 with me. He says, But the wisdom from above, that is true, um, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, and it's impartial and it's sincere. Verse 18, And a harvest of righteousness is sown or planted in peace by those who make peace. What you see here already in contrast to false wisdom, true wisdom is characterized by, it's got a lot of things up there, but it, in short, to just to package it for you, it's characterized by a bunch of selfless, uh, selfless motive and good, what James calls fruits. And fruits is scripture's language for things that are godly, things that are produced out of life with God, like uh, what he says is first pure, it's peaceable, um, impartial, things like that. Things that are totally opposite to uh, pride and selfish ambition. Um, he says, truism, it's pure, it's undefiled, it's gentle and peaceable, it's selfless, it's open to reason, and it's impartial. It's not closed off or catered to personal want and desire. And he says it's sincere and it's authentic. It's, it's true. And, he <clears throat> and here's where that wisdom comes from. Um, it starts off right there, wisdom from above, wisdom from God. It comes from the creator of the soul as opposed to the enemies of the soul, right? Genesis 2. Let's go back to the beginning again. I'm just going to read this for you. Um, This is in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It says, The Lord God, this is him creating man, formed the man out of dust from the ground. And then he breathed into that man's nostrils 
the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. I love those two verses because of that word formed. Think of, think of that. And, uh, and I want you to think of um, a potter and a potter's clay, right? Um, think of and picture a potter shaping and floor, forming a, a mass of clay into a particular shape. Let's say into a, a coffee mug. That sounds cute. Um, that's what he's doing. I don't know if you've ever worked with clay, but I was just talking to Gracie over here who has been in a, in a potting class, potter's class. How do we say that? I don't know. Been in a class like that. And she's telling me how like when you work with clay, A, there's water there and clay is kind of muddy and it's like really pliable and you have to sit there and you have to work with it very intentionally. And you've got to be patient because it'll fold over on you. It'll get really messy and it doesn't really do what you want it to. So it takes a lot of intentionality to form this thing into, let's say, a coffee mug or for the God of the universe to create a living, physical, mental, spiritual being with a soul designed to have a relationship with him. Um, And if you think of it, the potter knows what he's doing. The potter knows that this, what I'm forming, is going to be a coffee mug to hold coffee, to be held in someone's hand. That clay, again, doesn't really know the difference. It's folding over. It's floppy. It doesn't, it's uncontrollable almost. It doesn't know what it's designed to do. It needs an author. It needs a potter to craft it and create it. God is the potter. We are the clay. He is the creator. We are his creation. He's the designer and the author, which means he knows what's best. He designed us. We don't know what's best for ourselves. We don't know what we were designed to do unless we know what the creator's intent was, right? The coffee cup doesn't know it's supposed to be a coffee cup, but the potter knows it's supposed to be a coffee cup because he made the thing and he's going to use it that way. He knows what's best. He knows how we ought to live out our design not us. And look at what following that kind of wisdom leads to. If we say, okay, if you, God, the creator of my soul, know what's best, and if I do what you say, here's what's going to follow. A life of indestructible peace that you can't even measure or imagine. Here's an interesting observation for you. Look at verses 17 and 18 if you have your Bible in front of you. Um, well, first off, you see that word righteousness, harvest of righteousness, More often than not in scripture, all through the Psalms and I think like in Hebrews and a couple other places, you see the word righteousness paired with the word peace, which I think is just an interesting nugget for you to chew on. The other observation I want you to notice is how many times the word peace is used here. You see peaceable, you see a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's used three times as if James is saying, this is the heartbeat of it all. This is what I'm trying to get you to get to have. Like, this is what I want you to have. This is um, what is going to be produced. There's a, in scripture's original language in Hebrew in the Old Testament, the, the word for peace uh, that gets used in Hebrew is, uh, is this word called shalom, which is a beautiful word. I think it's an intensely rich word with incredible depth to it. And the best word that we have for it is, is peace. But this idea of shalom encompasses so much more than just peace, right? Um, it's got incredible depth to it. it. It encompasses everything along the lines of peace, yes, but it also communicates and, and, and is getting at this idea of, of wholeness, of completeness, of order, of pure rest. Indestructible peace, yes, but also rest and wholeness and completeness and balance and harmony. All of those words are what the word, single word shalom is getting at. Um, it is the opposite 
of something like disorder and something of restlessness. Um, And it's what God created for us to experience. It's what God originally intended for us in the garden, in that abundant, beautiful life with him. That was shalom. And then sin entered the picture and and broke it, ruined it, um, and fractured it. And now we experience that kind of restlessness. Um, But shalom, think of Think of that feeling, just to kind of put an experience to it. Think of that feeling when you get to sit back and like you're, I don't know, at Saturday brunch at local foods maybe, um, but you're doing that thing where you just sit back and you're like, ah, all is right in the world. All is right within me. That feeling, that sensation is shalom. Everything is complete. Everything is perfect. I'm complete. I feel that wholeness. That is the idea of shalom, and that is what is produced when you actually follow the wisdom of God, who created your soul and knows your design and what you're intended to do and how you're intended to live. So that's what we want. That's what we crave. We know how to get it from above, but how do we actually cultivate that kind of wisdom that is going to lead to something like ah, shalom, right? How do we actually cultivate that kind of experience? First thing, I'm going to throw this up for you. We cultivate it by getting in God's word, by being in tune with his spirit, and being in community with his people. This is how God speaks to us through his word, through his spirit, through his people, and this is how we cultivate wisdom in our lives. This is how we know what is truly wise and what God is actually uh, has for our lives. We get into his word, which Proverbs says uh, is an entire book dedicated to wisdom, and it says the beginning of wisdom is knowledge of the Lord, right? Um, That is who is wisdom. God is wisdom. He created it. He knows it. If you want access to it, get in his word. And all through the book of Proverbs uh, is communicated, it's communicated that wisdom isn't um, elusive. It's not hiding. It's not something that's hard to get. It's actually like a lady who's in the middle of the street crying aloud, begging to be known and seen. It's there and it's accessible for you. It's saying it's right here. Are you going to look at it and are you going to use it or not? And the way that you know what's wisdom is you get in his word. And then secondly, you cultivate wisdom by shaping your life around the spirit. Um, Last year, we went through Galatians, the book of Galatians. uh, And Galatians 6, 8. I love this verse and we got to unpack it. It says, whoever uh, sows or feeds the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Again, your sin, your flesh, is only going to lead to destruction and death, corruption. But whoever sows to the Spirit, cultivates life in the Spirit, will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's what you get. Eternal life. Not just a one-way ticket to heaven. That's one way to think of it. But eternal life means so much more. It's not just a quantity of life thing. It's a quality of life thing. It's that experiential shalom. Ah, right? And he says, if you sow to the Spirit, you cultivate life in the Spirit, that's what you get. The other thing, his people, if you surround yourself, who you surround yourself with matters. And if you surround yourself with people who know God and love God and have his spirit living inside of them, and you seek wise counsel of what is true, what do I need to do, all those kinds of things, then odds are, if you're abiding in each of these and you're connected to each of these, then you're going to know the way of wisdom that leads to life and life abundant, that leads to shalom, leads to peace, and away from that restless, disordered, destructive uh, kind of life. And that's, that's step number one for cultivating wisdom. Get in his word, cultivate the spirit in your life, um, and be surrounded by his people. Um, 
if you have any questions on all that, by the way, would love to keep talking with you more. That's so much to unpack in and of itself. Here's the second thing, though. Here's how you cultivate wisdom in your life. Ultimately, uh, it comes down to making a choice. It comes down to um, choosing Jesus or not choosing Jesus, choosing yourself. That's what James is trying to get us to see. It's choosing false wisdom or choosing true wisdom. Which one are you going to have? And you look at all of Jesus' teachings, and that's the invitation that he has. Are you going to choose me, or are you going to choose yourself? Um, I already mentioned this guy named John Mark Comer, who he wrote this book called Live No Lies that I love, and it's kind of based around this idea of the three enemies of the soul that sabotage your peace, sabotage that experiential shalom. Um, And he writes this in that book. This is straight out of there, and I'm going to read it to you. He says, for Jesus— after he's looking at the Gospels and all the invitations of Jesus, for Jesus, you have two choices. Option A, you deny Jesus and you follow yourself. Put another way, you put desire on the throne of your life. You make getting what you want the ultimate authority and driving motivation for your life. Or option B is you deny yourself and you follow Jesus, meaning the exact opposite. You crucify the desires of your flesh and tap into your deeper desires for God himself. And the results, losing your life, which is what Jesus says, or saving it, which sounds pretty great. And according to Jesus, those are your options. Now, either or thinking is anathema, he says, in our postmodern age. We hate black and white approaches. We love the gray. I, especially, if you know me and you're close to me, I love the gray. I love keeping things gray. I feel like it's a lot more fun that way. But There are undeniably things, especially in Scripture and in Jesus' teachings, that are either or and that are black and white. And Jesus, who um, I think does create some gray in some areas, is pretty black and white on some things and doesn't let us get away with a lazy opt-out. His binary choices are designed to shock his listeners out of apathy and prompt us to make a decision, to follow him or not. And if you've been here with us long enough, you've heard us— say things like following Jesus is absolutely worth it, but it's costly. Following Jesus, the cost of discipleship is costly. It's going to cost you your life, but it's worth it because you're going to save your life. You're going to experience eternal life, quantity and quality, that deep experiential shalom. It's worth it. It's going to cost you everything, but it's worth it. John Mark Comer says, yes, you need to weigh the cost of discipleship, that it is absolutely worth it, and that it's going to cost your life. But, he says, we also have to calculate the cost of non-discipleship. Meaning, it's true, it will cost us to follow Jesus. But it's going to cost us even more to not follow him. Jesus is just trying to get you to run a simple cost-benefit analysis on your life. Your soul versus yourself. Think of it this way. Are you really willing to trade long-term happiness for short-term pleasure? Are you really willing to trade love and deep intimacy for a fleeting sexual encounter? Are you really willing to trade contentment with what you have for the feeling of just buying something new and shiny and that everyone else has? Just for a quick little thrill. Are you really willing to trade indestructible joy and indestructible peace for a quick coping mechanism and a quick escape? Are you really really willing to trade 
long, slow obedience towards looking more and more like Jesus and more and more towards that experiential shalom for an easy opt-out when the going gets rough and your faith hits a rough patch and things get hard and uncomfortable and awkward and you just want the easy way. Are you really willing to do that? Do the math. How much is your soul worth to you? Ultimately, what we see is you have the choice to lose your life and, and save it in doing so. It's costly, but it's worth it. And what James and Jesus both, in what they're teaching us, that's the, the invitation, that you have a choice. You must either choose love of God or choose love of self and the world. I don't think it's an accident that you're in this room today hearing this. I think you have a choice to make. So don't leave this room without making that choice or considering this. And my hope and my prayer for each of us in this room is that we are people who are marked by indestructible peace and life with Jesus, knowing that we are building a very, very beautiful thing by choosing Jesus over and over again. That we are building a very beautiful thing by long, slow obedience in the right direction, making choice, small choice, after small choice, after small choice, that when looking back, this is from one of my favorite prayers, it says when you do that and you look back on your life, they almost become stones, stone after stone after stone, leading to a path towards the welcoming arms of the embrace of a father who loves his kids and wants life for them, wants joy for them, wants peace for them. That's what you get when you choose that. And my hope and my prayer is that we are marked by that, that kind of life. That's the hope. That's the prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are and how you've loved us, uh, how you've created us. The fact that you designed us to, to know you and you designed us to have relationship with you and you designed us to enjoy um, life with you and all of its goodness and all of its beauty, Lord. Uh, Father, we thank you for the simple fact that um, when everything was broken and fractured by our own deception and our own destructive desire that you made a way for, uh, for the story to be rewritten, that it didn't have to end in our destruction, that it didn't have to end in death, uh, but that it could end in life with you again, and that things could be redeemed and could be restored. We thank you that you made a way through your son who loved us and gave himself up for us, that you've made a way for us to know things that are true and good and beautiful and lovely and desirable, and that all of those things come from you. Father, help us run and flee from the things um, of this world, the lies and the deceptions that tell us life and joy and peace are found elsewhere aside from you. Father, guard us and protect us um, and lead us by your spirit uh, in ways that only you can. And Father, for those of us in this room who haven't even decided to follow you and are faced with a choice and an invitation tonight, Father, I pray that you're your spirit would just invite and make that invitation clear um, to know you and to be loved by you and to walk in, in life with you. Um, Father, we love that. We long for that. It's your name we pray. Amen.